0: Well, good morning, everyone. How are you? Summer is here. School's done. Parents are happy. Yeah. Can't wait for September. Hey, I'm glad you guys are with us today. Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles, if you have them, to the Old Testament, Psalm 1, Old Testament. And um, as you're turning there, I want to ask you something. Um, do you guys know what a mondegreen is? Have you ever heard this term before? I had never heard of it. I just... I learned about it recently. I was reading an article and I found out that a mondegreen is a misinterpreted word or phrase that comes from mishearing the lyrics of a song. And it's a fairly, you know what it is, right? It's a fairly common thing. Uh, For example, uh, the well known Christmas carol, The First Noel, the lyrics, Noel, Noel, born is the king of Israel. The mondegreen, Noel, Noel, Barney's the king of Israel. (laughs) Not quite sure how Jesus feels about that, but, um, or take amazing grace. That famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. The Mondegreen, A Maze of Grapes, How Sweet and Round. So this happens a lot with pop music. You were know, listening to pop music, like with the classic Bon Jovi song, living on, a, living on a Prayer. The lyrics, it doesn't make a difference if we make it or not. The Mondegreen, it doesn't make a difference if we're naked or not. <laughs> I think it makes a big difference, personally. But, uh, or how about the Eagles song, Life in the Fast Lane. The Mondegreen, Life in the Vaseline sounds, makes no sense at all. Uh, and then one of my favorites from the Beatles, Lucy in the Sky, the lyrics, the girl with kaleidoscope eyes, the mondegreen, the girl with Kaleidos goes by. <laughs> so, and we all do this, right? So you get the idea. We sometimes mishear or, or misunderstand the lyrics of a, of a song, but we keep singing it wrong anyway. Well, as I was reading about this, I started thinking how, you know, there are a lot of songs in scripture called psalms. That's what the word means. It means song. And there are a lot of these songs in Scripture with lyrics that can very easily be, if not misheard, certainly uh, misunderstood. And so over the next couple weeks, I thought we could look at a few of these songs and make sure that we're hearing them correctly, because that's important. In his book, The Case for the Psalms, a Christian theologian and best-selling author, N.T. Wright, says, sing these songs and they will renew you from head to toe, from heart to mind. Pray these poems, and they will sustain you on the long, hard, but exhilarating road of Christian discipleship. And I think he's right. But the thing is, we need to hear them correctly. Uh, So with that said, I figured we would start with Psalm 1, which uh, serves as an introduction to the rest of what is essentially a, a, a scriptural playlist of tunes. So here are the lyrics to Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They're like chaff. The wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction." Uh, Ruth Whitman is a very well-known British author who just wrote a book uh, about happiness. It was published last October 2016. The title of the book, America the Anxious, How the Pursuit of Happiness is Making Us a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. Uh, And in the book, Whitman makes the point that as Americans, it's not like we're the only people on the earth who want to be happy, but after living in the U.S. for six years, she says, Americans seem to be culturally preoccupied with this idea of happiness, of finding happiness. She writes, since moving to the States, I've had more conversations about my own happiness than in the whole rest of my life. The subject comes up in the park pushing swings alongside a mother i met moments before or the man behind the fish counter in the market. While the British way can be drainingly negative, the American approach to happiness can spur a debilitating anxiety. The initial sense of promise and hope is seductive, but it soon gives way to a nagging, slow-burn feeling of inadequacy. Am I happy? Happy enough? As happy as everyone else, could I be doing more about it? She says, even basic contentment feels like failure when pitched against, capital H, happiness. The goal is so elusive and hard to define, it's impossible to pinpoint when it's even been achieved, a recipe for neurosis." Just so you know, Whitman isn't the only person writing about happiness. If you do a a simple amazon.com search, on the topic, you'll find some 15,000 titles listed as self-help books with Americans spending $1 billion a year on them trying to understand, find, and uh, achieve happiness. And yet, according to most recent Harris polls, two of three Americans admit that they're not happy at all. Now, if you're wondering why uh, I'm bringing up this idea of happiness, it's because the first word of Psalm 1 that we translate blessed is a Hebrew term that actually means happy joyful, uh, a state of contentedness. The writer of this ancient song uh, says that blessed or happy is the person who, and then then offers us, the listeners, uh, important insights about happiness. So what does the song tell us about what's become our national obsession? It tells us several things. First, it tells us that happiness is indeed possible. Some of you might be like, are you kidding me, dude? I came out this morning to hear you tell me that? But before you you judge me, uh, think for a second, right? That's a remarkably profound assertion, is it not? That genuine joy and contentment in life is attainable? That's a comforting reality, at least to me. However, the song also indicates that happiness is not a given. It's possible, but not necessarily probable. It's not a natural thing we experience. What do I mean by that? Well, listen... When we're young, we tend to be somewhat um, um, idealistic, right? We look at life, and we anticipate happiness. We anticipate it. We expect to get the education we need at the school that we want, leading to the job we hope for, finding the person of our dreams, having kids, having a home, making money, living happily ever after. When we think to ourselves, man, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm just good enough, and smart enough, clever enough, if I work hard enough, I will find the lasting happiness. I want. But then you know life progresses and the years slip by and the experiences pile up and we start to realize that man oh man life is hard. And while we do find some joyful moments along the way, we learn that la- lasting happiness is way more elusive than we ever we ever imagined. And as a result, some people some people tend to migrate from idealism to cynicism. Uh, William Shakespeare wrote a play called Much Ado About Nothing. You might be familiar with it. It's a comedy. And in the end of the play, all the tension in the plot gets resolved. Everybody's happy. Everybody gets, every person gets the person they want to marry. And the hero, who is thought to be dead, is alive. Yay! Wonderful ending. A few years later, Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, a tragedy where everyone dies miserably disappointed in the final scene. <laughs> you tell me. Which would you say is closer to reality? And don't get me wrong, we all need the storyline of much ado about nothing to kind of get us through life in a broken world. But in the end, Hamlet really offers, in my opinion, offers a more accurate reflection of what things are like. In his first soliloquy, Hamlet talks about the futility and the contemptibility of life. And he says, oh God, how weary, stale, flat, and unprofitable seem to me all the uses of this world. Later on, he concludes, we, we fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Translation, we eat a lot in life, but ultimately are eaten in death by uh, fly larvae. So, bet you're glad you came this morning. <laughs> <All right. laughs> Stick with me, it gets better. So, but here's the point. We start off life thinking true happiness is natural, it's probable but we end up with the impression that it may, in fact, be uh, unachievable. Psalm 1 is telling us that neither of those things are true, that happiness, it isn't a given, but it is possible. However, as the song explains, true happiness is fundamental. It's not superficial. Now, Generally speaking, most people today think of happiness in terms of, of good feelings, you know, immediate gratification. Uh, getting what we want, feeling good about it all. And, and there are, look, there are a lot of things in life that make us feel happy. There are. But those feelings are usually short-lived, kind of coming and going depending on our circumstances. But the happiness that's, that's referred to here in this song is a different kind of happiness. And yes, it involves emotion, but it goes far beyond feelings. As I mentioned before, it's a state of, it's a state of being. It's a deep, uh, constant sense of contentment and underlying joy. In Psalm 127, Solomon <clears throat> uses the same term for happiness to describe a father of many children, which is really helpful for me because, you know, I've been a parent a long time, and I, I, I've never experienced such feelings of joy as I did when, when each of my kids were born. And, you know, I, I love being a dad, but I'll tell you this. Over the years, I've experienced stained clothes, repugnant odors, sleepless nights, growing expenses, and, and, and some very confusing, frustrating moments. In other words, as a parent, I have not and don't always feel happy. And yet, no matter the situation, there's always a deep sense of joy and contentment in my position as a father. See, that's the kind of happiness uh, that this psalm is is talking about, one that is deep, It's it's, it's abiding, it's lasting because it transcends circumstances. It's not defined by circumstances. So what's the source of this happiness? Well, the writer begins by expressing, expressing it negatively, describing the happy person by the things that they do not do, which was very common in ancient Hebrew poetry. So the song says, Blessed or happy is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And, you know, there, there are some people, some interpreters, who make a, a real big deal about this progression of thought here, you know, walking, standing, sitting. And I get why they do it, but it's unnecessary. Because the author is simply, he's simply using a poetic technique known as synonymous parallelism, which is just a fancy way of saying, he uses different words and phrases to express the exact same idea. And in this case, the idea being that a truly happy person doesn't agree with and therefore doesn't go along with the philosophies, the attitudes, and the actions of those who have little reverence for God and even less respect for what God says is right and true, good, healthy, and best for us as human beings. They disregard that. They disobey God. They even mock God and His will for our lives. And we're being told here that ultimately there's no true, true lasting happiness in that. Then in turn, the author expresses it positively. and says, happy is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on His law day and night. Now it seems to me that to best understand what's being said here, we need to define a couple of terms. So let's start with uh, the law of the Lord. The Hebrew term for law is the term Torah, uh, which can refer to a number of things. It can refer to um, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament. Later in history, it re- uh, referenced the entire Old Testament. But most literally, Torah means instruction. Specifically, the instruction that God gives to his people for living good, healthy productive lives. and Therefore, Torah, or law here, refers to the scriptures as a whole, the Old and New Testament. Uh, The Hebrew term meditate literally means to whisper over something in the sense of reviewing it, even verbally, thinking about it, reflecting on it, reviewing it again and again. It's the idea of a disciplined study. You know, uh, Eastern philosophy promotes meditation. But um, for the most part, uh, it defines meditation as emptying your mind of all rational thought. Clearing your mind, emptying it of thought. Biblical meditation is the direct opposite. Biblical meditation means to fill your mind with rational thought. Specifically, the truth of God's Word. Now, why is that important? Uh, It's important because, I mean, look, um, many people today in our culture... Don't want the true God. Most of us just want a God that we can handle. You know, and so left to ourselves, you know, give our minds free reign. And we will always end up creating a God that doesn't really exist, only in our head. A deity of our imagination, one that we can manipulate, we can control. One who always agrees with us and our opinions, who never surprises us, never frustrates us. And certainly never tells us what to do. Well, what kind of a God is that? Is that a God you'd want to worship? I don't think so. And it's certainly not the true God, the God of the scriptures, the God of creation who is transcendent, holy, just, omnipotent, omniscient, and yet also tender, gracious, forgiving, and like a father, is lovingly instructive. And then there's this third Hebrew term, we translate delight. It's an interesting one. It means to experience intense pleasure in something. Uh, and the term is used elsewhere in Scripture to, to describe a young man's infatuation with a young woman. And so it, it, it's a powerful and emotionally charged term. So, <clears throat> given those definitions, uh, what is this song saying? It's saying that true, lasting happiness, joy, and contentment is not found in our circumstances, but in taking pleasure in, lingering over, filling one's mind with the rational truth of God's instructive word. You follow that? That's a mouthful, I know, but you get what I'm saying. Another way to think about it is to say, you know, when it comes to true happiness, the biblical idea, it's, it is rational, it's about truth, it's, it is experiential, it touches our emotions. In addition, it is transformational in that it has a practical effect on our lives. Because keep in mind, the the, the writer goes on and says, this this person, this happy person, this joyful, contented person who delights and meditates on God's Word, this person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf doesn't wither, whatever they do prospers. Now, I'm no tree expert, but uh, I, I know this much. I know that a tree will flourish or fade depending on its location, depending on its access to nourishment. A tree planted near an irrigation channel where, where water constantly flows and where its roots can run deep, that tree that tree will will be well fed it'll be healthy, uh, bearing fruit as it's supposed to it'll grow it'll grow to be very stable and strong, able to withstand any drought or storm that blows its way and I think it's important for us to recognize that that this isn't just beautiful poetry. I mean, it is beautiful poetry, but it's so much more than that. This tree imagery makes a very important theological point, namely, that the state of true happiness is not a reward, per se. It's not a reward. Rather, it's the result of a particular type of life. Just as a a tree planted near streams of water naturally flourishes and grows strong no matter its circumstances, So, the person who avoids evil and takes delight in studying and reverently obeying God's word naturally flourishes and grows spiritually strong, producing fruit. And when the storms of life come, and they will come, they will not fall. They will not fall. Not so the wicked, the writer says. Uh, he says the one who rejects God, who dismisses God, who who mocks God in his word. Here's the other simile. They're not like a tree. No, no, not like a tree. They're like like chaff that has no foundation, no stability, no security, and it just gets blown away by the storm and is lost. In other words, there's no, no lasting joy for the wicked, only misery. And so in a sense, so in a sense, the, the, the song is informing us that happiness is a byproduct. It's a byproduct of seeking righteousness. You know, so, so, uh, psychologists and sociologists today write a lot about and talk a lot about what they call happiness backlash. I don't know if you've heard the phrase. Uh, and happiness backlash refers to the, this phenomenon where the, the, the more that we strive to find happiness, the more miserable we are. Well, it's interesting. In Scripture, we're never told to find happiness. We're never told to pursue happiness. You realize that, right? I mean, we're never, you never read, blessed is the one who seeks blessedness or happy is the person who hungers and thirsts after happiness. You never hear that. Instead, we're told, blessed or happy is the man or woman who seeks after something greater, after something more significant, That's what this song is teaching us: that the person who is happy is the one who stops trying so hard to be happy and sits down and asks the question, "Who and what am I am I really living for?" Jesus put it this way to his followers: He says, "He says, don't worry about all the things in this world you think are going to make you happy—money, clothes, power, food, relationships, careers. Don't think about those. Don't seek after those things. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. Everything you need." For what it's worth, here's, here's, here's how I see it. If we seek God and his righteousness more than happiness, we'll get both. But if we seek happiness more than God and his righteousness, we'll get neither. I had someone ask me one time, do you really think God is committed to our happiness? And I thought about it, and my answer to that question is, <clears throat> is yes. But with this condition, if you come to God just to get happiness, then you're really viewing Him as nothing more than a butler, a gopher, you know, a, a, a delivery person, and not as the sovereign God of the universe, your Creator, the one who loves you and wants what's best for you. I mean, understand there are basically two ways to approach God. One is to come saying, God, I owe you everything, you owe me nothing. I owe you everything, you owe me nothing. The other way, is to say, God, I'll come to you, but then you owe me a lot. I'll come, but then you owe me, including happiness. What's your approach? What's your approach to God? If you're legitimately not sure what it is, here's how you can tell. When things go wrong in your life, when the storms blow in, if you will, and there's pain, and there's suffering, and there's disappointment, what is your attitude? How do you react to those things? How do you respond? If you respond by thinking or saying, man, what good is this faith deal? (laughs) My life's a mess. Look at the situation. What has God done for me lately? If that's your response, that indicates to me you're really more about using God for what you think you can get from Him than loving Him for who He is. Then the final thing I want to point out is how this song makes it clear that happiness is something you choose. It's a choice. It doesn't just happen, and, it, and it's definitely not something that's forced on you. It, it rests with decisions that you make. You, know, you choose whether you walk with the wicked or stand with the sinners or sit with mockers. You choose whether to delight in and meditate on God's word or not, and therefore you choose whether you will be a tree firmly planted, nourished and strengthened to withstand the storms of life, or whether you'll be chaff that in the end gets blown away and lost. It's your choice. You choose righteousness or wickedness, happiness or misery. I've got to tell you guys something this was interesting. As I was studying this psalm, something about it just wasn't sitting right with me. It just wasn't sitting right with me. I don't know how you're feeling about it, but um, the it's like the 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 more I, I I realized what it was saying, sort of the more anxious and troubled and uneasy I became, and I didn't know why. And it took me a while to figure it out, but I think it comes down to this. For me, verse two of this song is kind of outrageous. And I, I you know what? It's not kind of outrageous. It is outrageous. Totally outrageous. Don't you think that's true? I mean, we're told we're told the happy person, the truly happy person delights in the law of the Lord, right? And the mark of of, of righteousness is not is not going to church services regularly. It's not performing rituals. It's not keeping all the regulations. It's not attending life group. It's not giving. It's not serving. It's not participating in in the religious activities of the day. The righteous person, we're being told, meditates on God's law day and night. Day and night, meaning what? Meaning that they're consistently throughout the day paying attention to what God has to say. I mean, basically, the song is telling us that a happy person is the one who finds great pleasure in God telling him or her what to do, how to live, and then obeying him. The happy person finds great pleasure in God telling him or her what to do. And therein lies the rub for me. Because I don't necessarily always like God telling me what to do. You know, my rebellious nature more often than not wants to go my own way, do my own thing. You know what I'm saying? But think about it. God God calls us to be a particular kind of people. He calls us to always be honest. God calls us to be pure, gentle with one another. He calls us to be loyal to one another. He calls us to, to patience, to be kind, to be trusting, to be encouraging, to be radically generous men and women. He tells us to forgive those who mistreat us. He instructs each of us to love not only our family and friends, but also the strangers around us, those who are different, those who may disagree with us, even our enemies. God commands us to worship nothing else in this world but him alone, nothing else but him. See, here's the underlying irony of this psalm. The more you get to know the law of the Lord, the more you meditate on it, the more you study and realize what it demands of you, how can anyone delight in that? Yeah. Where's the pleasure in that? Given our broken, sinful condition, let's face it, even our best days, you know, we're nowhere near fulfilling what God's law demands. I'm not. I'm way more wicked than righteous. I mean, seriously. Seriously, how do we find delight in knowing we can never achieve the standard of perfection God calls us to? It's absolutely impossible. No one can live that way. Ah, but wait. There is one. There is one who has. Jesus. His mind, his heart, his life was saturated with the law. He delighted in the scriptures. Day and night, literally, he meditated on them. He understood them. He spoke them. He taught the written word of God to anyone who would listen. He quoted Scripture incessantly. But even more significantly than all of that, Jesus obeyed the law completely. There wasn't an ounce of mockery, sin, or wickedness in him. He displayed the standard of righteousness that eludes each and every one of us. And you may say, you may say, oh, great. That just makes me feel worse about myself. That's a crushing reality. How can I ever live up to his example? Here's the good news, you don't don't have to. You you can't, but you don't have to. Jesus didn't come just to be your example. He came to be your savior, uh, your redeemer, your rescuer. Think of it in terms of Psalm 1. Jesus not only meditated on the law day and night, he obeyed it day and and night. He obeyed it perfectly. He obeyed it perfectly for us who could never do it. He innocently suffered for our wickedness, our sin, our mockery. On the cross, Jesus went thirsty so we might be nourished. He withered so we might prosper. He became chaff that's blown away so that we could be brought in. He stood in judgment so we, the truly guilty, could be free from condemnation. Jesus went the way of destruction so we could walk in the way of life. Let's not miss this. Let's not miss this. Look and listen carefully because woven between the poetic lines of this beautiful song, we can see Jesus. We can never live up to the demands of the law we fall far short of it. We can't do it. And therefore, we can never delight in the law of the Lord unless we understand how Jesus lovingly, graciously fulfilled it for us. And therefore, there is no blessedness, there there is no true joy or contentment apart from him. As broken, imperfect, sinful people, we need Jesus. We need him to make any true and lasting happiness a reality in our lives. May we find him today and find the happiness uh, he wants to give us. Let's pray. Our Father, it's so interesting how um, it's not just true of Americans, it's true of people everywhere, but how as human beings we we, we we try to do everything we can to find lasting happiness and meaning and purpose and joy and contentment, and yet the more we look, the more we strive, the more we more we chase after the things that we think will make us happy, the more miserable we become. We experience this backlash in our lives, and even the fleeting moments of joy and happiness, they, they go away quickly when the pain of life and the disappointments of life, when the storms of life blow in. I pray, God, that this morning we would, we would come to know that there is no happiness in simply chasing after happiness. There's only happiness in seeking after that which is greater, your kingdom, your righteousness. There's only happiness in Jesus because in him we're forgiven. In him we're nourished, in him we prosper, in him, in him we, we are no longer condemned. In him we don't walk the way of destruction, we walk in the way of life. Everlasting. And we're grateful for that. And so I pray, Lord, each and every one of us to recognize this morning. If not, uh, if, if not for the first time, it, 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 we, it would be the first time we recognize we need Jesus. We need him, each and every one of us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Thank you guys for being with us. And um, I don't, I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey or in your life journey, uh, but um, you know, we kind of start off one way, in, with idealism and hope and excitement, and then as the years go by, some of us end up really cynical. <laughs> Neither place is realistic for us. The fact is, life can be hard. And you may be experiencing a season of a lot of joy and success, and that's that's great. That's wonderful. But uh, the storms will blow in. So then the question is, how do, you, uh, how do you weather the storms? The only way to find true happiness and contentment and joy uh, is seeking God and his righteousness first and foremost. Because in the end of life, that's all we've got. We can't take anything else with us. And uh, the good news of Jesus is that he offers us what we cannot get ourselves and that is forgiveness and life everlasting. And believing in Him as Savior is what it means to be a Christian. I hope I hope you get that, and I hope you've made that decision in your own life. Maybe you are going through a rough time, and you just need someone to talk to today. Our prayer team will be down here in the front. Maybe you have questions, more questions about this idea of Christianity. They're here to talk with you as well. So uh, I invite you to come forward and chat with them. Uh, two, two other things I want, I want to tell you about. One is... Um, throughout this series in the Psalms we'll be quoting a couple resources Uh, Tim Keller a pastor from um, uh, in Manhattan wrote a book it's a year long meditation in the Psalms just short meditations 365 of them Uh, we have that resource available uh, for you if you're interested it'll be it's really a good thing to use to work through the Psalms, and then also I quoted N.T. Wright's book, *Case for the Psalms*, and we're going to have that one. We thought we'd have it this week uh, today, but we'll have it the next week. There are two; those are two really good resources to help you if you if you want to read through the Psalms and learn about these songs of Scripture. Those are two good sources. Okay. The other thing I want you to, uh, to know is uh, next week is going to be an interesting week because you know Psalm 86 says that God is the God of all nations. And all the nations of the world will come and they will worship God together. And so next week, in light of that, that reality, next week we have a special guest who's going to be with us. Uh, his name is uh, Daoud Nasser. And Dawood, I've, I've met Daoud a couple of times in the West Bank uh, in Palestine. And Daoud is a, is a is a Christian. He's a Palestinian farmer. And uh, he's a man of great peace and is striving to, to, to cultivate peace in a very difficult uh, part of the world and he has an amazing story he has a, such a gentle spirit uh, but an amazing story so uh, Daud's going to be with us next, next week to talk about his life his experience and it's a reminder to us that God is the God of all nations not the God of America, not the God of Germany, not the God of you know, this one or that, but the God of all nations including the Palestinians there are a lot of Palestinian Christians in the West Bank who are struggling and they feel left behind by the church in the West, forgotten So uh, Daoud's going to be with us next week. You don't want to miss it. This guy is just, uh, he's one of the loveliest human beings I've ever met. So uh, I'm I'm excited that he's going to be with us. Okay? Come back. I think you'll really enjoy it. In the meantime, have a great week. Let me pray for us, and then we'll be dismissed. Our Father, I pray now that we would leave this place um, with a a new uh, sense, a deep sense of joy contentment and happiness recognizing that in you through Jesus, in you, we have we have all we need everything, everything else is icing on the cake may we live our lives in such a way with such joy and um, contentment that others around us see it and want to know where and how this joy and happiness where it comes from, giving us the opportunity to share with them about the one who loves them as well So may your hand of grace and peace and strength now rest on your church as we go our own way. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next Sunday.